0: Okay, so uh, thank you for joining me, today I'm um, going to be looking at and race, and hopefully this is something that um, we're going to explore even further within our seminar. So um, I guess I'm going to kind of meander my way through a little bit of theory, a little bit of educational research, and a little bit of sports research. Probably not going to be quite as intense as some of my other stuff, but I think uh, the seminar... Hopefully, the work that we draw upon in there and the stuff we unpick uh, will be quite useful for you to think further about, especially in terms of ideas around social mobility. I think the seminar will draw out upon that a little bit more. So here's some questions that I want you to just stop, the, you know, stop, take notes on, um, have some thought processes around them, and then we can come come back together to discuss them as we go on. Um, I will probably talk off of the slides quite a lot, so when I talk about these things, I may not actually be uh, discussing them on the slides, but just something to, I guess, to think about and to think with. So, I guess, if we start off, um, we often talk about identity as if it is separate. We talk about class, we talk about race, we talk about gender, we talk about sexuality. Um... But any one of you will have all of these, you know, in terms of your identity, going on at any one time. So I'm a white, middle class, cisgender, um, heterosexual male, right? Um, so gender, class, race, all comes into it at the same time. Um, and it. in terms of our research, maybe it's important that we consider all of these aspects and, and how they overlap. So... Um, Kimberly Crenshaw first came up with the term intersectionality a um, way back. And, and Crenshaw, who the picture is thereof, um, argued that um, firstly we cannot treat black men and black women's experiences the same. In the same way we can't treat white men and white women's experiences the same. And if you watch the video of Crenshaw on... Uh, Moodle, you'll see sort of some of the points you made about some of the legal systems and how the law kind of ignored the overlaps so if we have a look at this picture over here um, this Venn diagram if you like you can sort of get this sense of overlapping coming into many of these different aspects, so racial identity gender, nationality, sexuality, it hasn't actually got class on there but you can sort of see in the middle, that's probably how we describe all of us um, and we can see there's areas where it, there's clear overlaps which impact us in the way we access some spaces and not others. Um, Nicola sort of speaks a lot about her experience of coaching um, at Kings Cross Steelers, which was an LGBT plus inclusive rugby club, um, and specifically how within th- that community. Um, Different aspects of masculinity and race and whatever else played out within these spaces. Um, so, when we talk about these multi-dimensional identities, they're complex, they're embodied, and they're spatialized. Well, I mean, what does that mean? What well, means that they're embodied? It means we carry them around. We walk around with them. We talk with them. We you, you hear them. We, the way that we move is embodied. Okay, our class or our race or the intersection of both is written into our body Um, and it's shaped by the spaces which we have accessed the spaces which we have found ourselves um, within and we can reflect upon and change some of these but it's it's overlapping Um, and in terms of the different spaces I guess it's intersections between spaces and they cross over okay so sometimes you see a paper written about race but it doesn't consider class sometimes you see a paper written about class but it doesn't consider race lots of the research especially on urban deprived areas talk a lot about deprivation and social class and sometimes they mention that the young people in these are predominantly BAME Um, in some of these studies but other times they don't um, or it's there briefly considered but deprivation is supposed to be the issue um, as opposed to deprivation which maybe in some cases stems from some of the other elements as well um, and yes yeah, social fields influence I guess the amount of capital the amount of um valued behaviour which people bring into these different spaces, so um yeah, ultimately intersectionality looks at these multiple identities and it looks at the wider structures, okay um and how do these different structures play out, and the term that I like to think about is um how they shape similarities within and between categories, so how do they shape similarities and differences between races, but how do they shape similarities and differences within races? How do they shape similarities and differences between classes? How do they shape similarities and differences within classes, right? Um, and I am i think in the past I've been quite guilty of, whenever I talk about social class, um, having quite a London-centric perspective of class. And obviously in London... I guess, if I'm talking about lower socioeconomic status, working class individuals, um, there's racialized undertones to that, whereas in other parts of the country it's not so racialized. So, again, I think we've all kind of got a sense of this intersectionality in terms of race and class. Um, as I move forward, talking about other areas of intersectionality, be it gender and ethnicity, or be it gender and class, or or whatever, um, we might consider some of these aspects to come into play a little bit more. Sometimes people would refer to them as a double domination, sometimes people would refer to them as a double um, advantage, I guess. The idea is that they don't add up, they multiply, is what Crenshaw says. You know, if you've got particular inequalities, sometimes there's a multiplication. But again, it depends on the area and the spaces you're in, um, in terms of how you're treated, privileged or disadvantaged. So, I've got a quote here from Stuart Hall. And um, Stuart Hall is one of my favourite social theorists. And Stuart Hall talks about our identities, Um Is a process of becoming, not being, okay? So our our race, our class, I'm predominantly going to focus on those today, but they focus, they're, they're a sense of becoming in that it's about what we learn from the environment we're exposed to. So, and how we've been represented. So when he talks about how we've been represented, that's how we've been represented by others in our community, How we see ourselves represented in the media um, and how we think about our own identity and what is appropriate for somebody from our racialized or class background is learnt from the representations of our race and class that we see around us. Um, So it's not about who we are or where we come from so much as, um, you know, the roots. Um, so it's the roots by which the messages that we receive appear to us about what it means to be from a racialized, racialized or class background. So the root, like the bus route, by the messages we appear, as opposed to being something that is always just inherited from our our roots, i.e., our background. So what it means to be Black British, what it means to be. Um, working class, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, British, whatever um, what it means to be white, British, working class, are learnt from the roots by which the messages we sent. Um, now, Annette LaRue quite controversially in some ways suggested that social class played a stronger role in shaping childbearing patterns than race, um, and she argued that and she did some research in America that the social conditions by which people lived had a stronger impact upon the activities they engaged in, what they saw as appropriate and the style of playing uh, and taking part in sport than actually someone's racial or ethnic background so she studied families, Um, she spent a lot of time observing families and she sort of looked at middle-class black families and middle-class white families, working-class black families and working-class white families. Um, and what LaRue sort of suggested was that actually the nature of the activities they took part in and how they took part in activities were more similar on class backgrounds than they were on racialized backgrounds. So she sort of argued that the middle-class black students, to some extent, um... I guess it's quite similar to Will Smith and a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in her studies, right? We're, we're engaging in the um, stereotypically class behaviours, upper middle class behaviours, whereas the working class black students were, when I'm saying part in sport, it was less structured, it was less organised, it was more sort of pick up um, basketball and things like that. And that was similar to the white students as well. So um, again, she sort of suggested this idea of roots I guess could be seen in there too. So, just a couple of comments to be thinking about. Now, um, one of Stuart Hall's students, um, somebody called Paul Gilroy, who was one of Stuart Hall's students at uh, the Birmingham Center of Cultural Studies and then at Goldsmiths University, he sort of developed these ideas slightly further um, In terms of being intersectional, and when he's looked to understand um, race from an urban or a cosmopolitan perspective, if you like, um, he's come up with this term, conviviality. So Gilroy's come up with this term, conviviality, to talk very much about multicultural societies or what he describes as super multicultural societies. Um, And... He sort of makes this point about it being unremarkable to the point of boredom or the point that it's mundane, right? That convivial existences um, in certain parts of London, certain parts of the UK that having multiple different racial and ethnic backgrounds is just normal for the individuals living in that. Um, and there he talks about a sense of sameness, and that sameness being found in difference, and when he talks about difference he means difference from the majority or different from the um, majority of the culture, you know majority of people from the dominant culture, so in this scenario white Um, so when he talks about being convivial he says the idea that you may have black mixed race, Asian, Turkish some white students as well, who've all grown up in an urban multicultural environment, um, who to some extent would see themselves as having a sense of sameness to one another, because they've grown up in this urban multicultural space, um, which is different from the rest of society. Um, One of my dissertation students based his research upon this, and he looked at sort of he looked at a particular football team as a convivial space and looked to try and understand that. Um, And therefore, in these urban environments, Gilroy argues that individuals who are from those environments, they get it, they understand, and they're able to communicate with one another. Now, within that, sometimes it's along class lines, so they may all be... Um, from different ethnic backgrounds, but they might may, may share a class background, or sometimes um, there may be slightly broader class fractions and which might impact that. Um, and there's some research along those lines as well. So he, Gilroy makes those points that shared, you know, there's a sameness and a shared understanding, um, but difference is more difficult to navigate in non-diverse communities. So the point he makes there is that individuals maybe have this shared sense of sameness within these communities, but when they transfer out of these communities, the difference becomes difficult to 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 um, manage, or it becomes maybe something that becomes more clear, more aware, and so forth. Um, and he makes a point about a colonial past being an influence in that. So. Um, Am I rambling? Possibly. But Gilroy thinks his ideas of conviv- conviviality make for some interesting starting points to think about overlaps of race and class and culture within cosmopolitan urban settings. So why do we need to consider social class and race as intersectional? Why not just do my one lecture on race, do my one lecture on class? Well, first of all, the point I go back to is I think I did provide a very london centric interpretation of class, which I don't think is fair because there's a lot of people from the class who don't come from London. Um, so I think it's important that in my previous lecture I kind of separate them out um, and that, second of all, I think it's important that we start to interrogate ideas which challenge the stereotypes as well. So we start to look at ideas about the black middle classes. we try and unpick. These terms like BAME in a little bit more detail, and we try and make a bit more sense of other wider factors rather than just going, "Oh, it's race and class," and I can be really guilty of then using terms like urban, ghetto, whatever, and stereotyping black as low income, white as affluent, whereas it's a lot more complex than that. And part of what my job is to do is to make your thinking more complex, but. If we look at stats, okay, and if we want to understand free school meals and we look at them by ethnicity and we know here I'm probably being guilty of looking at low socioeconomic status, but we can see there that there are particular groups that are more overrepresented on free school meals. So travellers, Irish travellers and Gypsy and Roman travellers are two of the highest, highest groups. Um, and then Bangladeshi and black students, um, mixed race students are the next highest groups and then it starts like, slightly becomes reduced now again why is this important? well if we take terms like um, we often see South Asian used but if we look at the difference in Indian students on free school meals and Bangladeshi and Pakistani students on free school meals um, there is quite a significant difference in the percentage of children on free school meals who are That heritage, okay, Um, and it's worth thinking about Bangladesh and Pakistan in the culture of or in the politics of South Asia. Um, Obviously, they were part of the Indian subcontinent, but they were two of the Muslim nations, okay, or they were two Muslim parts of India, um, which is a majority Hindu nation. There was obviously at certain points there's history, tensions there, and they no longer remain part of India. But they're also two of the less affluent parts and areas of India. So there's already social class elements coming into them when we're looking at maybe who's migrating from India, uh, from the subcontinent to the UK. Um, we know that India as a whole and Pakistan, um, you know, those... Students, the sort of India is a vast country, but parts of it did take on more aspects of the of colonialism that represented and looked more like the British education system, more like the British political system, whereas the more Islamic parts, Pakistan and Bangladesh, didn't take on as much of that. So again, we see sort of some overlaps about that, when we then go into things like um, sort of GCSE and A-level grades as well, and, and exclusion rates. And again, I think I've shown these two tables before last year. Okay, but we see, like, first of all, we see the line here for Asian, right? But actually, when we split that up, in terms of Pakistani or Bangladeshi, compared to Indian, in terms of getting uh, the highest average GCSE results, there's a big difference, okay? And the same we can see for when we see black. Black African students and black Caribbean students, there is a difference as well. Now, trying to understand that, again, may be quite complex. First of all, whenever I've spoken to some of the black African students or black students with African heritage, they do talk about how much education is valued within their communities. Um, second of all, if we understand migration patterns towards the UK, uh, while we've seen more recent migration from black African heritage, actually black Caribbean heritage, individuals aren't migrating as much. So if we look at the London... Where predominantly, if we go back to the nineties and eighties, there was a lot of individuals who were of black Caribbean heritage. Actually, you would probably find now that more of the individuals who identify as black are of black African heritage. Um, and that's really important for two reasons. The first one is if we've got second and third generation black Caribbean students, they have their families have gone through education systems um, historically Whereby there has been a higher amount of discrimination against them. Okay, so if we think about mi- migrants from the Caribbean um, during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they were much more explicitly uh, discriminated against in education, in schools, and so forth. And actually, what we saw is a lot of Caribbean migrants who would have identified as middle class when they, um, when they, Moved to the UK, then would become working class or in low income areas, and the areas they could live in became, um, at the times, were very limited. I don't want to go into things like housing policy and that too much, but there were areas of discrimination in housing per- policy, which again made their economic conditions more difficult. So there's a real complex history to understand any of this. Um, on the one hand, we might say, yeah, Black Africans. There's a culture of aspirational within that, of aspirations within it, um, but also, you know, the idea of being able to reach your aspirations quickly—it's maybe slightly more achievable now than it was in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. And it's really complex. Who, who migrates from these countries? Who migrates from India? Who migrates from Pakistan? what qualifications they have to have to get in, etc. It's quite a complex thing to understand as well. Um, and what are the conditions that people have migrated in if they are first generation or if they're second or third generation. Again, it. it I'm probably rambling here, but stuff to think about in terms of sport. So, If we were to think about terms where class and race overlap, I've come up with some terms here that we often see used. If we think about street fashion, or if we think about the ends, or if we think about people talking about something being urban, or ghetto, or hood, what images come to mind. Um, So we get the idea that race and class are intertwined. But in themselves sometimes that can be problematic and that can be damaging sometimes that can shape our perceptions and our expectations of people as well right? Um, I think I listened as I was preparing to this to a song by the game Um within two minutes he'd, he'd mentioned about four or five of these different words which were were on the screen um, and you know you'll probably associate some of them more with particular racial and ethnic groups or within particular low socio-economic areas Okay, so then let's move on to sport. I'm just going to take a drink because my mouth is really, really dry. But um, Paul Campbell um, started to look at the history of race and sport and social class and their overlap. Um, And he's done this through the lens of one one black football team up in Leicester and they were a team set up for Afro-Caribbean men, when there was a lot of discrimination for them in the 80s they started off in the 70s and 80s to give black afro caribbean men a space to play um and he makes the point that actually historically when class when when sport when this team first started off um migration nullified class however things like qualifications training etc in the end did come through to play. Um, and this idea of racial identities are complex and class identities are, are emerging, right? So, the point that he also makes is that black middle class and I guess BAME middle class fa- families are often maybe in closer proximity to working-class communities, especially if they've been socially mobile. Um, and this played out in his study where he found that those socially mobile black and Asian um, individuals who had been at that club um, felt like it was part of their obligation to support others to have the same opportunity, and so they had this attitude about giving people a lot of chances um trying to model success for young people and try and demonstrate actually what you know they for them they felt it was important to be a positive role model um because they were sort of what he described as black lower middle class. Um, Whereas individuals that he described as black upper middle class who came into that organisation from outside had very different attitudes towards the black men who were in the team. Um, And he argued they were much quicker to make judgments about behaviours, the way they spoke, um, the way that they acted, and to say that you... You'll never be successful if you do this. You need to get rid of these players. Um, you shouldn't accept that, etc. So, he sort of spoke about this idea that sports clubs can act as interclass boundary spaces, and in some ways, that can be seen to promote, possibly promote social mobility, possibly encourage um, the young people in those settings to consider and learn from others in their community. And I think often, you know, again, religious spaces we can see as. Um, following a similar purpose, right? especially if they have uh, youth clubs or sports clubs or whatever attached to them, that they create what they would call is um, inter-class spaces, which if you think, many of you may have grown up in areas where the inter-class boundaries were um, quite permeable, and some of you may have grown up in areas where there wasn't too much boundaries between individuals with different classes. So he did note different attitudes and behaviors um, and tension tension between generations and tension between individuals who are of different class backgrounds as well. Now, Darren Wallace takes this research a step further. And Deron Wallace's work for me is some of the most powerful work to consider and to look at for us as teachers. Um, Deron spent a year in in schools in South London, um, in black and mixed schools in South London, doing observations, doing interviews, um, and trying to understand how class and race intersected in children's experience of school in secondary school, um, and how in schools where the teachers were predominantly white, how black working class and middle class students um, behaved and interacted and so forth. And the first thing that point that he made is that teachers often um, saw the students' racial background first without reading their class backgrounds too. So the point that he often made is sometimes that the students would use the middle class black students as a sort of judgment or a level to judge the working class black students by. So those whose parents were teachers, police officers, um, worked in the city, whatever, had good jobs, but still lived in the same area and sent their children to school in the same area. Um, the Teachers would often sort of praise them for having read particular books or engaged in particular things. They may have known about, I think that gives the example of someone having read Malcolm X or somebody who's looked at, um, has an understanding of Caribbean poetry or whatever and the English teacher being very, very complimentary of them and the fact that they'd engaged with this cultural capital and this awareness of this wider knowledge. But then sort of would almost use that to some of the working class students of, well, why can't you be like that? So had this sort of overlapping attitude towards the good black and Asian students and the not so good black and Asian students. Um, And one of the points that Darren Wallace makes that I really like is this idea that um, before, when you spoke about Bourdieu, and he talks about cultural capital, the activities and the ideas which... um, and the activities and the tastes that people engage in which demonstrate their class that actually there's classed and racialized patterns okay and that what he describes as a black cultural capital is not always the same as white cultural capital but um again teachers were sometimes not great at spotting some of that and sort of having an awareness of those overlapping factors spoke about the idea that some students um, Katie Fitzpatrick in her work of young um, urban Maori individuals in New Zealand spoke about the idea that actually what this sometimes results in is people having working class students having identified ideas about natural and internalised beliefs about their, their race and their class backgrounds and um, and again how what sports they took part in were sometimes shaped by financial choices so in, in the scenario of New Zealand rugby was very accessible so lots of the working class young people would play working class BAME Young people would play rugby. Okay. Now, Youssef Bakali takes his research a step further, um, and he talks about the idea that space and place are key in shaping identity in multicultural urban environments, um, and highlights this idea that urban subcultures are viewed as racialized um, and the byproducts of economic and cultural factors, so that we can't separate. Sort of some of these ideas from each other that, while they're sometimes viewed as racialized, why young people might dress a particular way, why they might like a particular sport, why they might engage in that, um, actually, this is a byproduct of the environment. And understanding how that impacts people in different environments, in urban spaces and non-urban spaces, is something that's really really important Um, when I did some of my research this idea of young people who grew up in urban multicultural spaces really embodying those spaces and it was a sense of who they were so young people who'd grown up in north london birmingham northwest london south london whatever um, where they grew up was a sense of their identity it was a sense of the sort of person they were um, it was a sense of central to being who they were. It was embodied, and that was racialized and classed. It was that uh, I grown up in this multicultural urban area, um, and this is my background. Whereas, once uh, individuals who grew up in pre- um, predominantly white areas and middle class areas didn't seem to have that. Well, no, individuals who grew up in predominantly white middle class areas. Didn't have that sense of that area shaping their, the sort of person they were, who they were, what they liked, the taste of what they were. They sort of saw themselves as an individual who could fit in in more different areas. So, again, all of this is stuff that kind of is worth thinking about. And now, if we look at these ideas about intersections of class and ethnicity and stereotypes, um, we can think about how this plays out across different sports and different areas and I guess I'm giving you a snapshot of a lot of different stuff today but something that I remember really sticking in my claw um, was this quote and some of the stuff that I've seen about Ellis Genji and Kyle Sinclair um, who are obviously two mixed race props that played for England um, recently and sort of this idea that they were titled Rough Diamonds made me sort of want to be sick, to be honest, when I first saw this, Um, when we had these value judgments being made about them by these people writing for these very posh newspapers. Um, But secondly, like, while they're trying to celebrate their stories and their trajectories, so Kyle was born to a single-parent home in London, attended state school, and is now a role model for others on a similar path, at the same time, it's kind of... Maybe using that to batter others who aren't international rugby players. Um, And what I found interesting is obviously, Carl Sinclair went to school in Wimbledon initially and then got a scholarship out to um, independent schools because of his rugby playing skills. And some of his comments here, which you know, in an interview, he sort of said. You can see what's happening with knife crime. It's just because kids are bored and sitting around. Um, at the moment, kids are sitting there around and they want that adrenaline rush. And I kind of think, like, whoa, hang on, mate. Like, it's a really simplistic understanding of of what's going on, right? Of complex socioeconomic conditions. Um so again, I guess it's to say that not everyone from one racial or ethnic background will see things a particular way, but also our environment that we're in might shape the way that we view things, um, and secondly, we've got to be careful not to have this de- deficit perspective about individuals in terms of these sort of class and ethnic perspectives. Now. I guess, as I said before, I'm giving you a lot of snapshots building upon that, but one of the other points that I really wanted to make is um, a lot of the patterns that we may be seeing in the UK with individuals who are from Caribbean and African heritage to some extent and some South Asian countries such as Bangladesh and Pakistan um, is prominent throughout countries that are now part of the history of the british empire okay um the same sort of statistics the same sort of um value judgments about being physical the same in the same sort of individual patterns of socioeconomic states we see in the uk appear with other groups across the what was the british empire um you know Maoris and Pacifica in New Zealand, um, Pacifica and Aborigines in Australia, and then we've got this really complex situation going on in India. At the moment, there's a bit of discussion about in about in India about the overrepresentation of individuals who are Brahmin. So that is the highest of the Hindu classes, if you like, in the cricket team. They make up something like five percent of the population, but make up a lot more of indian cricketers and this is a bit of a legend in the game here Linda Tawai Smith um, who's done some done a lot of thinking and analysis about these links between colonialism and um, ideas and and who's positioned where in particular countries And, and Linda Tawai Smith sort of makes some really interesting points about how if you take the examples of Australia and New Zealand that were settled nations as opposed to nations that were colonised through different methods, so India was obviously colonised through a very different method to what Australia and New Zealand was, Um, how in some ways the imposition of a particular education system or the imposition of particular norms and values about how society should be lived is seen to what has maybe shaped and, and produced this structure where there's an overrepresentation representation of people from Pacifica and Maori cultures in the lower socioeconomic statuses. Um, and again, just some ideas here from people like Katie Fitzpatrick and Brendan Hokawitu, who sort of have suggested that, in turn then, some of these ideas about who Maoris or Pacificas are, have been internalised by Maoris and Pacificas, where they would sort of see themselves as being more physical, less intelligent, um, and that they'd be really good at rugby because they see themselves as physical, strong, etc. So there's this real complex system of what's going on and maybe why we see some of the behaviours we see. Again, maybe if you feel like I'm just jabbering, tell me to shut up, because maybe I am. So, a point for you to hold on to think about a little bit. Um, in the seminar, we're going to unpick this idea of social mobility, and how sport is possibly seen to be a source of social mobility for young people from low socioeconomic economic backgrounds. Um, and I really want to touch upon briefly on the work of Keon Richardson because Keon's going to be hopefully in the seminar with us. Um, he mentioned, and that is key on there coaching. Um, and he's talks about the idea that sports initiatives for young BAME people or young people in highly multicultural areas um, they can develop some, you know, important skills from these initiatives, and they can develop a sense of confidence, and it can encourage them to develop a really safe. Um, you know they can develop in a very safe environment and develop their knowledge and positive relationships with each other and interacting beyond the boundaries of their normal confines however he's quite critical in some ways about actually in terms of being socially mobile whether these initiatives offer individuals the chance to develop beyond those confines to what extent young people from low socioeconomic status backgrounds and young black people from low socioeconomic backgrounds develop the skills and qualities that society judges being valuable from these settings, um, or the connections and links to individuals who are going to provide the opportunities with them. Um, and while the staff sort of almost informally support students on transitioning and development and giving them advice upon accessing one setting or moving to another, or how they might experience that um that's done based upon the experiences of the staff as opposed to being structurally shaped and built into the program so a bit of a whirlwind tour there um and i've probably mentioned 401 different ideas um maybe might feel a little bit scatty right now hopefully we can bring it all together in the seminar. And hopefully Keon talking about some of his work and some of his ideas, if he if he's able to join us, um, will help you do some of that as well. So thank you for taking the time to listen. Um, and that is not the slide that I wanted to go on. So, yeah, thank you for that.